Have you been affected by the suicide death of a beloved friend or family member? If so, you're probably facing many unanswered questions. We hope to discuss some of them today. This is What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life with your host, Marshall Adler. Marshall lost his own son, Matt, at the age of 32 and has since dedicated his life to talking to people who have also been affected by suicide. Now, here is Marshall Adler. Hi, this is Marshall Adler. I want to thank you so much for listening to to today's program. And I'd like to tell you that I have another person to thank. I'd like to thank my very, very, very special guest today, Sammy Bolger. Sammy is a very brave woman who contacted me about a month ago because she unfortunately lost her son, Oliver. And anybody that know that has listened to the show knows that the reason we are doing this show is that we lost my son, Matt, to suicide. And I was so impressed by Sammy reaching out to me and her uh, brave bravery to contact somebody that she never met and she was willing to open up and talk to her, talk of her loss with her son because I was willing to talk about my loss with my son and I was so impressed by Sammy, by her sincerity, her kindness, that we really bonded and I asked her if she would be kind enough and brave enough to be a guest on this show. And she actually did do that. And she's uh, my special guest today. So I'd like to, without any further ado, introduce my new but very good friend, Sammy Bolger. And Sammy, again, I want to thank you so much for your braveness and your willingness to reach out to me, but also to be on the show today. So I'd like you to say hi to the audience and uh, make sure that they can hear you okay. Hi, Marshall. Thank you so much for having me. I just really appreciate you having me, and I really appreciate you doing what you're doing and um, getting our message out to hopefully help others as we all move forward um, through our tragedies. Yes. Well, I tell you, I appreciate you reaching out to me because this cannot be done without people like you that have unfortunately been on this journey. And unfortunately, the reality is that there's many, many, many people that are already on this journey. And there's going to be many, many people that have not yet begun this journey. But unfortunately, they will be on the journey. And hopefully, people like you opening up on a venue like this, where people throughout the whole world can listen to your journey, will get strength and help from the kind words you're going to give them. So again, I really appreciate all your kindness and your, and your willingness to speak today. But what I'd like to do, I'd like to introduce you to the audience, but I really think the best way to do that would be to have you tell the audience your background, your background with your family, your, your husband, your children, so we can have some understanding about where you've come along on life's journey. So if you can tell the audience about your background, that'd be great. Okay. So I am one of three children. I grew up in an um, 
a home of mom and dad, three girls. And um, my husband grew up in a family with the two parents and two boys. And they lived in Ohio and I lived in Florida. So my husband and I met about 91 or 92 and got married in 93. Um, We had Alex, our oldest, and then 18 months later had Oliver. And then about three and a half years later had our girl, Anna, and um, lived a pretty normal life uh, by people's standards. Um, They played soccer. They played sports. My husband coached soccer, um, and I cheered from the sidelines (laughs) and and drove them around everywhere they went. And um, so growing up with the three kids, it was just a pretty traditional family. Oliver, Alex was a little bit stoic, a little bit quiet, um, kind of in charge kind of boy. Oliver has always been on the quiet side. He's always loved his room, uh, pretty introverted, but always drew people to him. As far as I can remember, people would go into his room and say, Oliver, come out, Oliver, come out and play. And I, you know, always recognized there was a certain sensitivity to him and a certain quietness to him. And Oliver was just not one you could ever even begin to raise your voice. I think I raised my voice probably two times or maybe three times in his life with Oliver, just because you could see him just crumble if you even went that direction. Um, and then our youngest, our daughter, uh, kind of the extreme opposite of Oliver, just more outgoing, uh, more vivacious, just made friends very easily, not as reserved as my other two children were. And uh, grew up... Um, doing, like I said, normal things, playing sports, trying different things. And my Oliver, since he was the middle and since he was so quiet, I was trying to find his own little niche for him. So he actually discovered the guitar when he was in fifth grade and that took off. Uh, My parents had bought him a $50 uh, on clearance guitar at Target um, after Christmas clearance sale. And that was just his thing. It just took off. And um, so I felt good. I knew he was quiet. I knew he was a little bit awkward. And I just felt good about that was his niche. That was what he did. And I always kind of kept an eye on him. Um, I don't know if you remember, I, there's a movie, I can't remember the name of it, like Cheaper by the Dozen. And the little boy goes off and gets lost and they have to go find him. And she tucks him under her wing and the mom tucks her under his wing. And my husband and I looked at each other and just kind of thought, that's Oliver. <laughs> so wow. that kind of gives you a description of him. Yeah. Right. And yeah, and, and it's funny because when I before I had him, I just I just pictured this little fairy boy with glasses, and that was kind of almost true to form for Oliver. He just fits the name Oliver. He had little glasses since he was uh, two years old. Um, extremely bright, extremely talented in almost anything he did, and um, so we just kept an eye on him for many times. And like I said, he was quiet, but he had a, I would call it, I don't usually say this, but a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> so it's like man too, just, right? Yeah. Yeah. So just, he was one of those, that was just so quiet, but when he spoke, you just listened to him. He, and I've said this many times about him is that you just never, he just never said a bad word about a single person in his life. If anybody ever said a bad word about anybody around him, he would just look down or look away. He would never involve himself about saying a bad word about anybody. And if you ever uh, had any, needed somebody to be a judge for disagreement, you always went to Oliver because he was the always one that never had ego, never had any sides to choose. And just, you always listened to whatever he said as he was growing up too. So, and he, he just, as you can imagine, a middle child and, um, but 
his, but loved. I mean, his siblings, they all loved each other um, and close. He was a little bit hard to, he had a little bit hard time conveying his emotions verbally. He could write some things, but he wasn't that chatty about things, kind of quiet. But just, there was just something, and I'm sure you feel this way about Matt, there was just something special about Oliver. If you ask anybody, there was just something special about him, just a vulnerability, a kindness about him that just drew people to him. And so that was a big chunk of his life. And I, I worried about him. But I'll, I'll be honest, I have a dad that's an engineer and I have a father-in-law that's a math professor. And those two people kind of have a certain quirky awkwardness to them. So um, I always kind of watched him and he always kind of did well in school and always had friends, but wouldn't always go out a lot of times. Um, so that's kind of our, our story as far as a family. Uh, then my oldest son went ended up going to University of Florida and then Oliver and I do remember this thing this being one of the happiest times in Oliver's life is when Oliver got accepted he ended up going to Cornell University wow. and and I know and Oliver is one of those also one of the people that you him just hold his breath until something happened and then you could just see him exhale so when I saw him get when he came and told me he was accepted to Cornell you could just see him exhale and just the happiness that I'm in. Well, it, must been, it must have been incredibly bright to get into Cornell. I mean, it's Ivy League school. I mean, his grades and his test scores must have been off the charts. I mean, is that the way he was pretty much throughout his whole life? Pretty much, yes, yes. He was extremely bright in math, extremely bright. Um, he actually ended up getting a perfect score on math, and I think just shy wow. of perfect score on the chemistry subject test. First time he took it, he got a, a perfect score on the math. Um, so he obviously was very talented in math. <laughs> what, what, did, and, um, well, what did he want to do? Did he tell you what he wanted to do with his uh, degree? Well, or, or interestingly, no? he, he, well, he started off wanting to go to um, uh, Car- uh, Carnegie Mellon. So we, and I, I will share this too, is that one of my very favorite trips that I've ever taken in my whole life is Oliver and I, just the two of us, rented a car in Florida and drove up the East Coast in the rental car and stopped at colleges along the way. And as soon as we landed, looking at Carnegie Mellon, as soon as we got to Cornell, that was it. That was that was the end of the all after that it's point. Beautiful. Yeah. So, oh, it is. And we drove over beautiful. to Boston. Yes, yes. And then when we got to Boston, flew home. And just that time with him is such, especially now, is such a precious time. So, um, so he was originally going to go into computer science, uh, and just eventually changed and. Um, when he wanted to be an actuary and when he went to Cornell is a, is the time that the bottom fell out for him. In fact, I got the call October 3rd from him saying, have you or anybody else in our family ever felt suicidal? And then a lot of just the floodgates opened and he just shared so much with me of what was going on. And I went up to Cornell. I bought the ticket while he was on the phone and went up the next morning and, um, what was that? Was, got was, care. What was that his first year at Cornell? Just his first, freshman year it was his first year it was his freshman year and i have since learned a lot about since then it came to a diagnosis that he had bipolar but that was it was a really long and winding road to get that diagnosis and a touch of asperger's um there was some people saying he had asperger's and some that didn't but i i know he had asperger's a touch of it he just didn't have the communication skills verbally he could write them but he could not say them he could not express his emotions a lot of times um, so did he, yeah, did, so did, he, he was ever, up. did he ever give you any indication 
prior to going to Cornell that he had any suicidal ideation or thoughts like that? Or was this the first time when he went away to, to Cornell? No, he, so in 10th grade, he, he was, no, he did not. Um, but he did start being very depressed to me in the summer between 10th and 11th grade. And I did, and it's really hard uh, as a mom, it's a really fine line to say to your child, I think something's wrong with you. <laughs> so right. how do you broach the subject and say, you know, you need to go to a counselor because he never came to me and said this. Um, you know, and I did ask him if he was depressed, if everything's okay, but he kept everything always really tight inside. And so the way that you see bipolar people, how they have those episodes and everybody around them goes on their roller coaster rides with them many times. He did not. This was all happening internal. He kept all of his roller coaster rides inside his own self. Mm. Um, so when we went to the counselor that summer, um, we talked and you know, I thought just bringing it out to light and letting him know that we saw him, we were there for him, a lot of that. Um, and he just, he never, he still never revealed that he was just that depressed. But I did see improvement in him. And then he ended up getting a girlfriend in 11th grade and we saw improvements and we just thought he was doing better. And he did do better. Actually, you could see a, a difference in him physically and had the girlfriend. And I think that helped quite a bit for him. And then when he went to Cornell, I still felt a little bit um, nervous that he was going off, but he was so bright. And I just thought it wouldn't serve him well to stay here and just to be able to go be with people as bright as him. He just, that was his dream. And it was, it was a little bit of me putting my faith in God and saying, okay, <laughs> right. um, and letting him go because I just felt like it was, it wasn't, it wasn't the great choice either way if that stay here or go there. There was vulnerabilities both ways I felt. So, um, but I wanted to give him that opportunity to be able to go to explore with how bright he was. Um, so when he got up there um, and what I've since learned is, you know, they hold a lot of things inside until all their social structures are, are gone. And so when he gets up there and all the social structures are gone and you're, family's gone, then everything just falls apart. And so it appears that they're having a breakdown at that time, but they're not. They've been dealing with stuff a lot of the time, and that's just when you see it. Um, so he called me October 3rd, and I went up there, and um, that's when he told me. He told me he had been feeling suicidal since he was 11, and just, as you can imagine, you know, just the heartbreak at that point, trying to find him help. And that's part of the heartbreak is trying to find them help, um, as they share this with you, getting help isn't as easy as sometimes it's advertised to be right, and right. finding the answers aren't always as advertised, aren't always the way they're advertised to have clear answers. Um, so we try to get him help up there. He wanted to stay up for the semester and then he just couldn't quite make it. So we brought him back down here. And then his first attempt was, I think, August, October 30th. So I was up in Ithaca for about a month trying to stay there. The psychiatrist said, you can't leave him. You either have to stay here or take him home. And he wanted to stay. So we were trying to get him through the semester. He was trying to get through the semester. Um, and then it just didn't work. So we ended up bringing him home. And it's a long, winding story. <laughs> well, I'll, but um, I'll tell you what. So he, he was up there for the – he probably started in late like, August, early, early September, so about a month into – his first semester, cool. you had to come Correct. and see him. And then you, you actually brought him home right around late October, Halloween time. Is, is that when he, he came home permanently? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Uh, what I'd like to do, unfortunately, we have to take a very short break here. And I think it's a good time to break because I'm really interested in hearing what happened after he came home because um, it's obviously was a bittersweet time for you. You're happy to see your son, but you don't want to see him in a situation where he's having thoughts like he was telling you and coming home in that situation. I'm sure it was um, difficult to figure out what to do here. And I'm very interested in your insights as to what happened when he came home. So uh, we have to take a very short break. And again, I appreciate everybody listening to Sammy. And again, I appreciate Sammy speaking and opening up about her family's journey with her son, Oliver. So right after the short break, please stand by and Sammy will continue to tell us about her journey with her son, Oliver. Oliver. We'll be right back. Thank you very much. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Should there be more to your life? Do you need a change? Transformation for Success with Dr. Barbara Young will provide empowering commentary each week to encourage you. She will interview successful personalities from movies, television, business, technology, health, and academia. All of them have amazing stories, resulting in transformed lives. You'll learn how to discover real happiness, financial success, and fulfillment to live your highest purpose. Join her on Tuesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and a replay Fridays at 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Become a member of voiceamerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. Once you've created an account and signed in, you can create your own custom library, opt into our newsletter, search by show, host, guest, or topic of interest, or browse millions of hours of content across all of our Voice America radio channels. Membership gets you more. Visit voiceamerica.com today to get started and tailor the listening experience to your taste. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are tuned into What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life. If you'd like to send Marshall Adler a question or comment that can be addressed privately or on a future program, please send an email to marshalontheradio at gmail.com. That's marshalontheradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Thank you so much for listening, and I want to pick up where we left off with Sammy telling us what happened with her son Oliver after he came back from Cornell in late October. So Sammy, if you can just tell us the journey from there forward. 
Okay. Um, so he, so we tried to get him help up at Cornell and they had, there's, I mean, I could go into further detail, but I'll keep it brief that the medications, I think what I've since learned is, and I, we didn't know it. So everything I'm telling you now and discussing now, a lot of it's hindsight's 2020. <laughs> so when you're in of that and trying to figure out what's going on, it's not as clear as I'm telling you back, you know, looking back. <laughs> so, oh, you, you're, you're, um, you're, you're, it's like you're in the, the vortex of a tornado. You're in the middle of a tornado trying to figure out what yes. you do. I know exactly yes. what you're talking about. Yes. And you just don't, you're trying to figure out, you're trying to find answers. You know, is he bipolar? Is he depressed? Is, you know, he's, he was diagnosed with major depression. He was diagnosed with, um, at one point, borderline personality, one point bipolar, rapid cycling bipolar. So there's just all these working theories that are constantly going on. But, but backing up, when he came home, um, we were looking, but when, you, when they gave him an antidepressant, when you give a person with bipolar an antidepressant, it kicks him into mania. And so when we brought him home, he was kind of in that state and he did not have euphoric mania. He had more like mixed mania and it was just not my Oliver that I just even recognized or knew or anything just he got on a plane and went to try to go to Seattle he um, started doing more of the traditional things that you think of bipolar um, and it just was not the person I recognized so there was all that struggle trying to figure out why that was happening and and again not having bipolar on my radar and not understanding bipolar at all you just can imagine like you just don't know when <laughs> you're looking for help. You're looking for people to help you, to give you answers and you're searching for everything. But also at the same time, you're trying to protect him. If this will be, you know, if he can get help and in three months he can go back to Cornell, you're trying to keep his life a chance to go forward in a normal state to quote unquote, you know, be able to go back to school and he took medical leave of absence. So there's just a lot of, like you said, a vortex or tornado of just so much going on and other kids in your house trying to give them some normalcy and trying to, you know, kind of keep things as calm and for them as well. So when he got home, um, we went to, I tried to find him help and we couldn't get a psychiatrist available for six weeks. We could not get a psych, we could get a psychologist, but it was really the medications that we needed for him at this point. And so um, I knew that time wasn't on my side and I was searching, calling around, trying to find a psychiatrist for him. And in the meantime, I went to go pick up my daughter from school for basketball practice. And this is the day after he got home from Cornell that we had traveled. We drove the car down. We had to bring all his stuff back from Cornell. So we drove. And um, a day after we got home and I left to go pick her up. And again, I was a little bit worried. And, but when I came back to make, Again, another long story short, he had tried, he had attempted to take his life. And it's by the grace of God, we found him. We lived near a park and he had gone over there and tried to overdose on some things because the doctor in the hospital up at Cornell said, don't hang yourself, try to overdose because we can save you if you change your mind. It's easier to save someone from an overdose than it is to change, than to save somebody from hanging. Mm-hmm. So that's what he did. <laughs> um, and we did, we were able to save him. So now he was in a mental institution, Baker acted, and now he was getting the psychiatry help that he needed and the psychologist. But now so much damage has been done that it's just, the journey just takes a whole different life of its own from that point on. So our struggle was long and winded. So to jump forward a little bit, just constantly trying to figure out what's going on. And then 
top of that, at this now he's 18 and I can't get, I, I've lost control. When they turn right. 18, right. You, you don't have, you don't have access. He, if he doesn't want doctors to talk to you, they can't talk to you. Right. Fortunately we, from me, go ahead. Yeah, he's legally an adult. So he makes his own decisions, even though he's still your child, he has privacy rights that you can't violate unless he gives you consent to do so. And it's very difficult for a parent to be in that situation. It is the most heart-wrenching hope, yes. just the heart-wrenching feeling in the world when you know, like, and, and fortunately, Oliver and I were close, and so he always gave me access, but but at one point, because he attempted three times, and the third time he was successful, but um, the second time, they took him into the hospital in Orlando, and I could not go see him or talk to him until he came to consciousness because they wouldn't let me because I didn't have access to him because I wasn't on, I didn't have permission yet because he wasn't conscious to give me permission yet. So you can imagine <laughs> the pain. Yes. So, um, so um, in the midst of all that, we ended up talking, uh, talking him into going to a place up in um, Atlanta and it was extremely helpful. And they gave us the best two years of our life with Oliver that we've ever had. And it was there, they diagnosed him with bipolar. It was still a working theory, but they diagnosed him with rapid cycling bipolar and gave him Lamotrigine and instantly stabilized and just, um, just became back. I mean, almost overnight, the Oliver that we knew and just even better than he had ever been and just became very grounded and happier than we'd ever seen him and more present than we had ever seen him and just had a really good stable year at home for about a year and then wanted to go over to UCF and go to college at UCF. And that's when he wanted to become an actuary and had an internship to be an actuary, had an intern actuar uh, actuarial internship in Jacksonville um, that would have started a week after he passed away. And so he was in, I think, UCF for about a year and a half, and he had roommates over there, and he had friends, and he lived in an apartment or house with the friends over in uh, UCF. And we had just gone, because everybody was doing so well, and because we just had two really, really hard years, uh, I just said, let's go on a vacation and go somewhere and just enjoy our time. And we went to Colorado, and we came back from Colorado, and I think maybe the sleeping son travel or something set something off and so when we came back he took his life about a week later after we got back from Colorado so I think something just didn't go right so it was even heartbreaking even more so knowing he was doing so well <laughs> he was doing so well I mean that is the exact same story that we had with our son Matt his last three years he was in San Diego he was the happiest years of his adult life functioning mm -hmm. at the best level he ever did had a contentment and a peace about him that would make any parent happy. And it sounds like Oliver was in the same situation. So he had come back from Cornell, gotten treatment, gone to UCF, got his academic career back on track, which I know you sort of had a, that weighing process between getting him the care he needed, but also hopefully getting him back on his academic career because you're so bright and all those mm -hmm. goals were being achieved and it looked like mm -hmm. everything was going in the right direction. Am I correct? Yes. 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 And then you Good. went on this trip and then you saw a change after you came back from the trip from Colorado. Mm -hmm. 
a little bit towards the end of the trip. And I saw changes in him from time. I saw him struggle from time to time, but he was able to pull out each time. It wasn't as if he still didn't have a little bit of struggles, but just, just still doing incredibly well. But yes, you're right. So a week after. Was this two years after he came back from, from Cornell? He was 20 years old. Yes, he was just shy of his 21st birthday. So um, t- at, uh, October 2017 or September 2017 is when he went into Cornell and then he passed away April and he went missing April 22nd, 20, wait, I said 2014 of October as when he was in Cornell and then April 22nd, 2017, he went missing. So. Tell us what happened when he went missing. So one of the things, because he had a hard time always sharing um, his feelings, I would always kind of monitor his social media. I had access to some of the social media he didn't know I had. <laughs> and you could kind of see when he was struggling when he was. And, um, and so that was kind of a little bit of the way I could kind of see how he was feeling. But one Monday morning, um, I got a call from one of his roommate's dads. And his, the dad told me that Oliver had been missing since Saturday. So I immediately went to the social site to see, you know, if he was posting anything kind of odd or something and they were down, the the sites were down. And just in my heart, I just knew if anything, I just knew that he was attempting to do something or disappeared. So I just, it just, that's got my stomach. I just, that's, I just kind of had a feeling, but a mother's hope is always a mother's hope. So um, we went to Orlando and called the police on the way over there. And that, that was a struggle in itself. It took a long time to get them to come. And um, that's a whole different story. But eventually they all came. They had a search. We looked all night for him. We did not find him. Um, oh, let me back up. So when the police, got, when I went to his house and I walked up to his room, um, I walked in and his laptop was on his bed. And so I kind of looked around a little bit and was looking around. And then I looked under his bed and there was an empty rope bag. And I knew that Oliver's way that he would take his life was, he'd always said that he would hang himself. So when I saw the empty rope bag, um, as you can imagine, (laughs) um, pretty traumatic and in my heart again, that um, kind of thought, okay, we have to look for this. And there were some woods near his family and, people were going out and the police came and they were searching and they were trying to ping his phone, trying to do the iPhone, trying to find it. And that's a complicated thing within itself because police won't go into his computer. They won't, there's passwords. They can't go into these things. There's just all these, it's almost like these roadblocks that keep you right. from finding him. And it's just right. frustrating. Um, so, um, but we have some pretty bright friends. <laughs> so um, we searched and they searched far and wide. I think there was like a 50 police, uh, there was a huge amount of looking for him that, that the next day. And, um, it, and one of the things that I think sometimes people don't realize is that in my heart, I knew that's what he was going to go do and I didn't want to find him. And so what looks like me not looking for my son was, I don't want to find my son in that state. So um, if I would kind of go look, I would kind of look down on the ground into woods and I would look for broken branches to see if I saw broken branches and if I saw that I just thought I'm going to go back and tell somebody and tell them to go in and look but I also knew it couldn't be that far because you don't have to go that far to do that so um we went home um and then um a friend of mine was finally able to get in and find out where his phone was 
And then my husband, and this will make me cry a little bit, but my husband did say, I'm going to go get my son because they did find his location. So my husband went out back through the woods and took some friends who knew how to get to the dark parts of stuff. And then they did find him about 11 o'clock at night. Um, so that was the way that we found him and um, kind of the end of that part of everything. <laughs> so. I know I, I know exactly what your ex- experience because we got the call from the coroner that Matt had passed. And I have talked about this before that I knew he had passed because the, with us also, he was 3000 miles away. We couldn't get his apartment. We had to have the maintenance man give the police the key to open up. And when they told me that they gave the police the key an hour ago, I knew he was gone because if the police had seeing that nobody was there, they would have called and said, your son's not here. But the fact mm-hmm. that we were in there for a hour, I knew the next call was going to be the coroner. And mm-hmm. it's almost like your life is just changed forever and you can't believe it. You think this yeah. isn't happening. This is a dream that has turned into a nightmare. I'm going to wake up and say, thank God there was just a horrible nightmare. And yeah. for us, it's been 14 months now 15 months mm-hmm. now i'm still waiting to, i'm still waiting to wake up i'm still yeah, thinking yeah. this it's a nightmare that hasn't happened that matt's gonna call me and say something funny he was really a funny funny guy and say oh what are you talking about that never happened you were just dreaming so i know yeah. exactly no seriously i know exactly yeah what you experience and to this day i think the rest of my life i'll never truly get it out of my head that this is just not real. It hasn't happened. It's just a bad nightmare that I'll eventually wake up from. Obviously that's not reality. Right. Matt is, is not coming back, but right. your intellectual thought process and your emotional thought process are on separate tracks and as a parent, you can never think that your child's gone. So yeah. I know I know exactly what you what you've gone through. I mean, I yeah. I every story is heartbreaking. Ours mm-hmm. is heartbreaking. Yours is heartbreaking. And again, I can't thank you enough for being brave to tell this story because it is unfortunately something that many, many, many people have gone through and unfortunately mm-hmm. will go through. And what I want to do now is unfortunately take a short break, but I want to come back because the reality is you and I both know that other people will unfortunately go through this. They may mm-hmm. not know it right now, but they will. And I want when we come back after a short break to talk to you about how you and your family have survived and thrived after this loss. Because I know talking to you, you're a wonderful, loving person leading a meaningful life. And Mm -hmm. to do that after the loss of a child of a son is something you and I both done. 
and it sure is not easy. So I'd like mm-hmm. to take a short break, and we'll be right back. And I can appreciate Sammy being so brave to tell her story. So we'll take a very short break. We'll be right back. And I want to ask Sammy about how she and her family have survived and thrived after this loss. So we'll be right back. Thank you very much. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. Please join Dr. Sarah, a.k.a. Dr. Red, on an amazing journey of love, soul, abundance, compassion, and authenticity. Dr. Red is a well-renowned healer, hypnotherapist, author, and speaker who has overcome personal challenges to emerge stronger than ever before to reach out to you and heal you emotionally, mentally, and spiritually for the most informative and enriching experience filled with unbridled laughter and insights on life, health, culture, and society. Tune in to Dr. Red Set. Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Do you wish you could avoid having difficult conversations with your kids about sex, relationships, and how to stay safe? Do you struggle with what and how much to say? You're not alone. Tune into Holistic Sex Ed Radio with host Robin LaCrosse for a fresh new perspective on sex education that goes beyond the birds and the bees. We gather together every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for conversations designed to improve your relationships, expand your knowledge, and give you the tools to help your kids make the most out of their lives. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life. If you'd like to send Marshall Adler a question or comment that can be addressed privately or on a future program, please send an email to marshalontheradio at gmail.com. That's marshalontheradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Thank you very much for coming back. And Sammy, I would like you to tell the world how you and your family have gone through this journey after the loss of Oliver, because our journey after the loss of Matt, be frank, has been brutal. It just really has. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we have decided to do this show as a tribute to him to help other people the way Matt helped other people, but everybody's journey is unique as unique as the individual is going through it. So if you could please tell us how you and your family have gone through this journey together. Okay. Um, and I, 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 that's one of the reasons that I did contact you because I appreciate just the way that you've moved forward with Matt and, and, and honoring his life and, and trying to help other people through this. So I think that's our connection is trying to take that same path to live lives that honor our sons because their whole story isn't their suicide. Their whole story is who they were when they were alive too. Yes. And they were very special people. And yes. so, um, and 
I have this sense that I have to go live the life that Oliver couldn't live. <laughs> and, uh, and, and every morning I get up and I say, okay, Oliver, you're going wherever I go, you go with me and we're going to go live this life fully. <laughs> so, um, so my family, when it happened, um, so when, so one of the, one of the bittersweet, I guess, God's mercy gifts, whatever you want to say is, I think my story that I would be sharing with you today is completely different if I hadn't seen Oliver's struggle and been a part of Oliver's struggle. Um, I think that's God's grace to um, give me understanding of just how much pain he was in and how much struggles he had and how much trying to find the help wasn't just a good conversation or just a hug. You know, it wasn't just, we love you. Um, it wasn't enough. Um, so, um, when, so in the midst of Oliver's struggle, his sister, um, her name's Anna, um, he was in the hospital one time and she, um, brought him a, uh, virgin, uh, pina colada from someplace. And so, um, she brought it to him in the hospital and then he wrote her, he, he wrote her and said, Anna, thank you so much. Um, I know this isn't just a pina colada. I know this is you telling me just how much you love me and that this isn't just pina colada. This is the best pina colada in the world. <laughs> so, um, and he said, and I love you back that much. And so, um, so she was so much by Oliver's side through his struggles and showed up for him every step of the way. And they actually, in some sense, got closer during the struggles and um, she just showed up for him. And so I think doing that has given her peace moving forward um, and has helped her to move forward. And then in the same turn, having other children. Um, and I think you talked about this too, that when you're at the gravesite, you have choices to make. You either, you can die with them. You can choose yes. to go with them. Yes. Or you can be walking dead. You can stay, you can still be here and then just kind of move through each day and not living life. Or you can say, I'll take up the pieces and I'm going to live my life and honor him the best absolute way I can. Yes. And so that's what we've all chosen to do for him. And um, I have been kind of, I want to take a careful approach to mental health advocacy just because I think there's, um, a lot of easy things to say and sometimes they're effective and sometimes they're not. Like even as I say, I move forward and live a really full life. I have a, a worrisome about other people who are feeling suicidal and saying, well, they're moving forward. They're doing okay. You know, like their parents made it through. My parents will be okay too. <laughs> and so I don't want anybody to ever take that message away that we will be okay <laughs> because We've chosen to move forward and be okay, but as you know, it is a choice each day to carry that pain with us, and we live with that pain every day. And right. so it's not just we're moving forward in a just a carefree, happy, joyful way. You know, just I just want people who feel that way to know that this is a pretty hard decision each day to say we're moving forward, you know, and carrying that with us. Um, so, uh, and just... Um, we just try to honor him and I want to do advocacy. And I think the best way to do it is to share our stories as you're doing, as you're helping and, and having people share their stories. And I, the power that I've learned, the power of connection and the power of community that I've learned, but with all of our struggles and after the fact, um, my faith has changed. I'm like a Santa Claus faith. If I do the right things, if I do this, if I pray, if I do this, 
it'll all work out. And it just obviously doesn't work that way. And faith is now, I will be carried through my pain. And, and, and I've learned in suffering, you find connection with people sometimes and just the power of community and the power of connection for people is so um, important in my life now. The, the meaning of connection and the meaning of community just takes on a whole new meaning because I think a lot of things happen in isolation and it just makes things worse and people do get isolated and they're afraid to reach out and they're afraid to talk to people. Um, and I've decided in my own heart that I can share my story and I can talk to young people and share my story and then let them ask me questions that stand out to them of what they want to know, as opposed to me talking at them and saying, okay, if you see a person depressed, do this, do this, do this. Because I just feel like sometimes there's really hard questions. They don't even know how to ask. Right. Um, and if we're willing to be there in the presence with them and just answer their questions, um, that they don't even know they have until you share your story, I think it can kind of help them too. So I feel like that's kind of where I would like to go with my story. Have you gone, have you gone to support groups? I'm, I'm interested, like, it sounds like, you know, talking to people is, I think it is very important. After Matt passed away, I couldn't talk to anybody for two weeks. I must have had 100 emails, calls, text messages, and letters that I still haven't answered. And yeah. I think people understood that and they were kind. And then I slowly started going to support groups and I found that talking was helping helpful. Mm -hmm. And now all I want to do is talk. I'll talk to anybody, mm -hmm. anywhere, anytime. I've had people that I've known for years come up to me and say, I never told you this, but I've had suicide in my life, family member, mm -hmm. whatever. And I've had, you know, wonderful people like you that I never met before reach out to me and talk. So I think what you say about talking is absolutely imperative for every person to look at on their journey. So have you, have you and your family gone to support groups? Have you found it helpful along, along the way of this journey? Um, I, I, ha I went to a support group, yes, and I have a very good community of friends that I am able to talk. I, 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 for some reason, I'm able to talk about things. I don't know why, but I can talk about hard things. So, um, and I can, I'm the opposite of Oliver, that I can share my emotions pretty easily and pretty well. And so um, I, I just have good friends that I could lean into during this time. And I did have a very good, strong community around me during this time. Now, what I don't do, is um, always share exactly how I'm feeling all the time. And I think I, I think support groups are wonderful because I think, I, I remember going to the support group. I think Oliver was gone for six weeks, I think, at that time. And I went and people were laughing. Like I remember somebody saying something and making a joke of their husband's slash father's suicide because they said, well, this time he really did it. He was always threatened and they kind of laughed about it. Which I think in any other circle, if you did that, <laughs> right, it would you would just be looked upon as that, how can you even think that's funny? And I think it gives you a freedom to be able to share in ways that people don't understand, and you don't know till you know. You just don't know till you know. You can imagine, you can, you know, think about it, but you don't know until you know when you're there. So right, right. So what groups are? I totally agree with you. It's like you go to a suicide support group 
everybody there speaks the same language mm-hmm. because they've all gone through it. It's, you know, so many people came up to me and they say, I can't imagine what it's like to lose your son to suicide. And I tell them, you are correct. You cannot imagine what it's like to lose your son to suicide. I'm trying to be, no, you know, no. I'm not trying to be funny here, but you got to laugh at it no. because it's yeah. like trying to explain to somebody, well, what's it like to walk on the moon? I never walked yeah, on the moon. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I have to talk. Buzz Aldrin has never told me personally what it's like. And if he did, it'd probably be different He's than he experienced know. it. You know, I yeah. don't, I, and, I, and when people say that, it's true. Unless yeah. you have, you know, old saying, walk a mile in my moccasins. It's an old saying, you know, walk a mile in my shoes. Yeah. And it's true that when you go to support group, they speak the same language. So I think laughing about things, I've, I've, mentioned this before at our support group i've said this we've gone to uh halos which stands people don't know it's h-a-l-o-s it's healing after loved one suicide and sometimes mm-hmm. there's a lot of laughter and i'll would sometimes make a joke saying hey this could be a netflix sitcom it might be the <laughs> oh, hottest good, thing yeah. in hollywood because it, <laughs> yes. it, it it there's such a fine line between comedy and tragedy between yes. sadness and happiness and you know both of our sons dealt with depression but they were both really funny people that can make you laugh yes. because they had a unique way of looking at life. And that's a yin and yang of life. So I think what you're saying is absolutely true. How you can be in a situation where if it was any other situation, it would just be inappropriate, but with people that speak the language and give you support, mm-hmm. it actually can help you through this journey, which is, that's interesting. They understand. Uh, yes. Yes. You, know, you yes. said something else that, I want to ask you about, which I've always agree with you. You mentioned the pain Oliver was in and mm-hmm. people ask me the eternal question that whenever anybody loses a loved one to suicide, people always ask why. And, you know, I've said this before. It's like having a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle thrown on your dining room table and saying, there you go, figure it out. And if I had to come up with a, answer for the people that I've talked to with their loved ones is that it's just pain relief for whatever reason somebody like Matt who dealt with chronic depression it's painful and I know Mm -hmm. his friends in California who said that he was so happy mentioned that although he was really happy with his life out there, they said, take your worst day of depression, multiply, multiply that by a hundred, deal with it every single day of your life, no matter what's happening, good, bad, or different in your life, and see how long you have the energy to keep on fighting that. And I think there is a component of suicide. I've read different medical and psychological experts talking about this, that it is just pain relief. Like, do you feel mm-hmm. that? way with Oliver also that the pain was just to the point where he wanted relief from the pain. I do. I do. And I feel like even as much of pain as just fatigue of just, it just felt like he was defeated. Like, and we actually, so this might be too much information, but we, we, there was a security camera across the street when we were looking for him. So we actually were looking at that tape. So we saw him come when we were looking for me, we saw him come out of the house and go walk away from the house. And so, and when we saw him, he just looked so t- 
tired. Like he just, I think he just thought this is never going to end. It was, I think he thought it was so good. And then it hit him really hard. And he's like, it's not this good. It's, it's just not going to end, you know, and you can imagine living that life with that pain for the rest of your life and not having experienced so much. That's all yes. you can see. So yes, I think it's an escape from the pain. It's just pain and defeat and tiredness. So it's, yes, I agree. It's amazing you say that because, you know, obviously the title of the show is what I've learned from my son's suicide. And, and mm-hmm. I never dealt with depression in my life. Until oh, Matt's yeah. passing, you lose a mm-hmm. son, guess what? You're going to be depressed. And it gave me a whole new appreciation and understanding of his life and how tough he was to deal with what he had to deal with on a daily basis. And not yeah. until his passing did I understand what that was about because he never tipped it off to me. He was always funny. He made me laugh, and he would tell me times he's depressed, but then he'd make a funny joke about it. And I'd say, well, how depressed could he be because he's making me laugh? And the answer would be he fought it. And I commend those people that fought as long as hard as they could. I think you said something that I think is really important, that it's not how they passed away. It's how they lived. They mm-hmm. lived meaningful, mm-hmm. loving, compassionate lives. Absolutely. Fought, fought the good fight for as long as they could. And I think yes. they, and they, I, had, they had to be commended for that. Oh, I, and I told Oliver, and I, I still think this, I would tell him when he was going through, I said, you're the bravest person I know to get up in that pain every single day and to to live a life of appearance of normalcy is just, I cannot imagine that just how much energy that takes to do that. So I agree with you a hundred percent. I just think they are so brave. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I want to talk about somebody else that's so brave and that is you because unfortunately we're going to have to close this episode and you are a very brave person that I commend you for contacting me and willing to speak publicly about Oliver and your family's journey. So I just want to, Sammy, thank you so much. And you are as brave as Oliver. You are your son's mother. You have the same Mm -hmm. bravery, the same blood, the same commitment to compassion and to living a meaningful life. And I think you should be commended for being Oliver's mom. And I wish I had the honor of meeting him. I wish Matt and Oliver could have met each other. I do too. I do I re- too. Very I, much so. I they really sound do. very similar. Yes. 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 Well, I, I think they would have gone along. <laughs> yes. And they, they would have made us both laugh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, listen, I can't thank you enough for being a guest uh, today. And I know that you gave a lot of great insights to the audience. So I cannot thank you enough, but I want to close by thanking the audience for listening. And again, thanking Sammy so much for being here. And I want to close by telling, as I always do, that if you or somebody that you know or a loved one is struggling, please contact the appropriate medical or mental health expert as soon as possible. Call 911 if it's warranted or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-273. 
888-888-8255. And again, I'd like to thank Sammy so much for telling her story today. And I appreciate everybody listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you very, very much for listening. Take care. And thank, and thank you so much for your work. I really thank, appreciate it. And thank you, Sammy. Listening. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you so much. We'll Great. talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to What My Son's Death by Suicide Taught Me About Life. We hope we've given you some insight concerning the issues of surviving and thriving after the suicide death of a loved one during our program today. Please join your host, Marshall Adler, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a good week.